Well, good morning, everyone. So much more energy than the first uh, celebration there. We had five voices, so uh, I hope it is a good morning for you. And today we are beginning a brand new series that I'm excited about. Every summer we take one particular book of the Bible and we go through it. Uh, And so today we're going to look at the letter to the Ephesians. And uh, what we want to do is encourage you uh, to uh, dig into uh, this book and uh, we'll do some uh, background stuff today. My prayer and my goal going into this is that you'll be more spiritually mature at the end of the summer than you are today. So I want to strongly encourage you uh, to dig in. And uh, the reality is, though, that any time that we uh, talk about context, it's kind of like talking about U.S. history uh, in high school. Either people love history or they hate it. You know, there's like no uh, middle ground there. And so if you love history, you're going to love this. If not, just hang in there until later on and we'll get better as we go along. Um, So when we look at context, what we're talking about is the background. And there are some questions that we want to ask. First of all, we want to know who wrote it, uh, who it was written by, and what is the purpose. Uh, There were many books uh, that were written, but only a few were chosen to actually um, be in the Bible. And so why is Ephesians there? Uh, So we're going to look at some of these backgrounds. So not just the written words that we have, but everything around it. Now, again, context is not always the most exciting stuff, but it's kind of like a little pain now. For a lot of gain later, okay? So stay focused and we'll be good. Well, let's ask the question first of all who wrote Ephesians? Does anyone know? Who wrote it? Paul, look at that. Not Peter, Paul, and Mary, okay? But it was just Paul. Uh, and uh, interesting fact about Paul is that before he came to Christ, he actually persecuted Christians, he hated Christians. He killed Christians. I bet some of you know some Christians you'd like to kill, right? Um, Well, eventually, Paul went from a Christian murderer to a Christian messenger of sharing Christ's message. And more than anyone else in human history, except for Jesus himself, he impacted Christianity. Now, most scholars believe that he wrote this around 60 A.D. So that'll kind of be your next fill in there, 60 A.D. And as Paul is writing this, he is writing it from jail. Okay, so uh, Paul is writing it from jail and he continued to write letters from jail, sharing the message of Christ for the next seven years until eventually... The way he was killed was he was beheaded with a sword for his Christian faith. Now, one more thing that's important in understanding this letter is the purpose um, of why did he write it. And Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Christians in Ephesus and to give them an in-depth teaching about how to nurture and maintain unity of the church. So he wanted to encourage them, and his big concern was that unity would prevail. 
Well, those get, well, that gives you some of the background to everything. And one of the things I want to encourage you is to stay connected with the teaching throughout the week. So in your program, you received a little insert that looks like this. It says Beyond Belief. And we've broken it down Monday through Friday. We're generous. We're going to give you the weekend off, okay? But Monday through Friday, you'll be able to read through this first chapter. And we left some space there if you want to ask questions or comments or maybe you hear a whisper from God and you circle it. And my encouragement would be to keep uh, all of this kind of together so that whenever you look at Ephesians the next time, you can do that. Now, I'm committed to reading uh, all of Ephesians in these next seven weeks. And uh, how many of you are with me? About half of you. It's so encouraging, you know. Uh, No, I want everybody, okay, everybody to do this. Now, let's go ahead and let's dive in now that we've got some background. Uh, If you brought your Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to go ahead and uh, look at Ephesians. It's in uh, closer to the back. And uh, if you're not sure where it's at, look at the table of contents and you can find it. If you didn't bring your Bible today... You're going to hell. Um, <laughs> just joking. There was somebody new at the first celebration. And I paused it just like that. And they were like this. I was like, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. So, no, you won't go to hell. I promise. Okay. Um, but all the scriptures will be up on the screen uh, that we'll talk about today. Okay. Just got to loosen up, folks. Some of you are a little, a little too tense this morning. Now, this morning, though, what I'm going to walk you through is a theological minefield. Because for the past 2,000 years, and in particular the last 500 years, Christians have fought heated battles over these two things we're going to talk about today. In fact, what I'm going to talk about today has literally split denominations in half. What I'm going to talk to you about today has actually split father against son, and mother against daughter. And many pastors have actually lost their jobs by teaching on this. I hope that doesn't happen to me today. Although a guy today, after church, he came up to me and goes, I got a trailer if you need one. So uh, I hope that doesn't happen. So let's be a little bit more optimistic about that. Now these are two theological or views of understanding of God that we're going to look at today. And the first one is called Calvinism. Okay? Calvinism. Not Calvin and Hobbes. Okay? Calvinism. All right? And what this uh, theological view says that God chooses me to join his team, to be redeemed, to go to heaven when I die. Now, Calvinism is named after a guy by the name of John Calvin. We got a picture there. I think he had the first peace sign. See it down there? Kind of like, or maybe that was L, like love, you know? I don't know. Um, But John Calvin, he was a French theologian. He lived in the 1500s, and his theological view became known as Reformed theology, like Reform School. So this is what they came up with. Now, let me just kind of summarize his position real quickly. Listen closely. Um, He would say this. By the decree of God, some people are predestined or chosen to eternal life, 
while other people are chosen or predestined to eternal condemnation. So some are chosen to uh, eternal life and some are chosen to eternal condemnation. Now, Calvinists would hold that individuals have no say in this, but it's determined by God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, before the foundations of the world, In other words, before God made the entire world, he had already chosen who was in and who was out. Now, Calvinists would also say that before anyone gets too huffy about God making all these kinds of choices and us not having any say, Calvinists would say, look, everybody, though, deserves eternal separation from God. And they say this because it's in Scripture. Romans 3.23 says this. Let's read it out loud together. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the first word again? All. That means all. Like all of us. Okay. Uh, The second one is Romans 6.23. It says this. And the wages of sin is death. Now ask the person beside you, do you think I have ever sinned? Actually, let me help you, okay? Don't waste your time. You have sinned. You have sinned. And anyone who has known me or been around me long enough would say, Chris sins too. Much more than you think he does. Folks, we have all earned this spiritual death penalty separation from God. Then the Calvinists would say, it's actually amazing that there would be a holy God who would even want to come down and choose to redeem or buy us back into his kingdom. He doesn't have to do that, but because he chooses to, it should force every single person to fall to our knees on the mercy and grace of God that he would even choose to come down and to redeem us. Now, if you're a little confused right now, I'm going to try to help illustrate this. Suppose a ship captain takes 50 men on a ship and they're going to deliver cargo uh, across the ocean. And just suppose that when they get about halfway there, they stop at an island... And the ship captain is gracious, and so he says, hey, all you guys can go and get some food and take some showers. And suppose all 50 of the guys, instead of going to get dinner and have showers, they start breaking into the islanders' homes and stealing all kinds of stuff. And they behave terribly. And they all get arrested, all 50 of them get arrested, and they get thrown in jail. Then suppose that the ship captain goes to the judge and says, I will pay the fine and damages of 25 of the men. I will choose which ones they are. I want them to go with me on the second part of the journey 
to deliver the cargo, so I will choose them. But the rest of the crew, they're on their own. They will have to pay for their own crime. Now question, is the ship captain being unfair to anybody? Good. You've been studying this week, haven't you? Very good. No, he's not being unfair to anybody. He's been merciful to 25 people. He's paying their fines. He's paying for their crime. And Calvinists would say that it is God's prerogative if he decides to extend grace to undeserving people who deserve the death penalty. People who have flubbed up, messed up, and screwed up in life, that it's God's prerogative to choose. Remember Bobby Brown's song? It's my prerogative. All right, those of you that are in your 20s, just, you're going to look at it anyways. Go ahead, Google it, and you'll find it there. And then I'll give you my dance move again. But it, it's God's prerogative. He gets to choose. Calvinists would argue that God does not make these choices, though, arbitrarily. They hate that word, arbitrarily, randomly. But what they love is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, that says this. He predestined us, in other words, he chose us, and get this next phrase, in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, the sovereign God who is choosing some people to redeem, he has particular reasons why he's choosing them. Okay, is everything clear so far? Because I'm going to get you real confused here in the next five minutes, okay? So just hold in there, but confusion is coming. Now, Calvinists, what they have done is they've created kind of a, um, an acronym for what they believe. And the first letter of each of their theological thoughts spell the word TULIP, okay? Now, some of you are going to leave from here and you're going to be like, TULIP, I have no idea, but he said it. But stay with me. Because this is a memory aid if you're a Calvinist. Because there's so much stuff, you can't remember it all. So you got to have an acronym. Here's the first one, simply put. By nature and by choice, total depravity is the first one. By nature and by choice, all of us have sinned against God. All of us are total, totally deprived. We've sinned against God. My youngest daughter, Shiloh, this week had a morning in which she was sinning all over the house. I mean, she was the biggest sinner in Muncie that day. She was sinning everywhere. Her attitude was bad. She was whining. She was just all over the place. It was just like every room she walked in, sin, sin, sin. And I bring this up simply because... She has a nearly perfect mom and an unfallible father, you know? (laughs) Oh, goodness. So she is just totally depraved. She is by choice and by nature. 
And we all sin. We all do this by nature and by choice. Second thing there, unconditional election. This simply means that when God chooses you, you don't have any choice in the matter. He chooses you. It's unconditional election. The next one, limited atonement. Now, this is a little bit controversial. This is the idea that the blood of Jesus, when it was shed on the cross, so when Jesus was on the cross and he died and his blood was shed, it was limited only to those individuals who would be saved. So there would be no wasted blood then on people who would not be. Next one, irresistible grace. It means that when God gives his grace to you, you can only choose to say yes. You cannot resist. And last one, perseverance of the saints. Simply means that once you have been chosen, God will sustain your faith all the way to the end. There is no way that anyone can pluck you out of his hands regardless of what happens. You are going to persevere all the way to heaven. Now, as I was uh, talking about these things, I had this same kind of sense that I got in the first celebration, kind of like this glaze. What are you talking about? Well, we just did what took, you know, hundreds of years to do in about three minutes. So don't be overwhelmed by it. But this is simply to say, folks, that Calvinists who say there, there's a sense that God chooses us, that we're predestined. There are tons of scriptures that talk about us being chosen. Scriptures that say, you have been chosen. It's a biblical concept. And some of the smartest people throughout Christian history have actually believed this way. And they've lived this kind of theology. And they can defend it powerfully. I mean, in ways you couldn't imagine. When I went to seminary, I had only taken one New Testament class in my life. So I knew literally nothing. And there were these theologians that were there. They thought they were theologians. And they would walk around, and they would know all of these theological views. Like when I said about Calvin and Hobbes, honestly, when I first learned John Calvin, I had no idea. I thought it was a joke. The professor, and I laughed. I was like, ha, ha, and no one else was laughing, you know, because this is like the, the father of Reformed theology. And uh, they would take me to school uh, about this. And I barely escaped with my life. It was like, you know, they would just rip on my theology big time. And they can defend their position in powerful ways. Now, this position also reminds us that as Christians, that God is sovereign and we can never earn our way to him. We were chosen. We were redeemed at a high cost of Jesus's blood. And it is like a ridiculous gift of grace. It's phenomenal that he would even choose to throw out grace as a gift so that we could have a relationship with him. And it should lead us into an obvious conclusion that we were chosen for a purpose. That God in his infinite wisdom, when he went down and he said, you are chosen, that we're chosen for a purpose, for a reason. Now, to be somewhat objective in all these, and it's hard to be objective with some of this stuff, what I want to do now is look at some of the difficulties with this kind of thinking. So here's some difficulties with Calvinist thinking. The first one is this. The Bible clearly indicates that human beings make some choices about their faith. It clearly indicates that we, we make some choices about our faith. 
Think about in the Old Testament. You might remember there was this guy named Joshua. Moses, the guy who had the Ten Commandments. Remember him? If you ever saw the movie, he's got these Ten Commandments. And he's getting ready to die. And he says, Joshua, you are my apprentice. You're next up. Joshua comes. He leads the nation of Israel. And on one particular day in Joshua uh, chapter 24, he says this. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you want to serve some other gods, because there were tons of gods. If you want to serve another god, go for it. You can do that. That's your choice. You choose this day. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like to me like there's some choosing going on. Don't you think? Like they're saying... Hey, you got to make a choice. What about the end of Jesus's greatest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus says, you get a choice of how you want to build your house. You can build your house on the shifting sands of human wisdom, or you can build your house on a solid rock foundation of Jesus in the words of Scripture. So you get to choose. You choose. Are you going to build your house on sand of this world or will you build it on Christ and the church? What kind of house do you want? Again, it makes me think that there is a choice. And what about the thief on the cross? Who makes a last second choice? He's on the cross. He's almost ready to die. And we know that still in the end. He makes a choice and Jesus says today, you'll be with me in paradise. Remember, one made the choice to go to paradise. The other one rejected Jesus. So it seems to say that we get to make some choices, even about our faith. Um, Second thing on this uh, position description or uh, Calvinist position is evangelism which is simply sharing the good news of Jesus to other people, sharing his love with other people. Evangelism loses its meaning if God is doing all the deciding. I mean, if if it's all up to God, who gets in and who gets out, then who cares about what we have to do? I mean, why go to your friends and share with them about Christ's love if it's already chosen? Like, they're not going to get a choice. It's up to God. So why not just say, hey, God, it's up to you anyways. You decide who's in and you decide who's out. It's your deal. Now, again, Calvinists can defend these kind of responses powerfully. But at the end of the day, folks, you have to look at this kind of thinking and you have to come up with what is God speaking to you. Some of you might look at this and say, man, there's some of that. That I love. God chooses me. But maybe there's some other areas in that that you're like, I I don't know. Again, the choice is up to you. All right, that's the first stream. The second stream is what we call Arminianism. Arminianism. Good luck spelling that. I was going to like see it and see how many of you could spell it correctly. But I couldn't, so I figured you couldn't either. So Arminianism. This is the concept that I choose God. So Calvinism says God chooses you. Arminianism says I choose God. Arminianism was named after a guy named Jacobus Arminius. He didn't have the peace sign at the bottom, okay? He, uh, he, was, he was looking off somewhere else, I guess. Now, it's come to my attention that we have 
several uh, women who are pregnant and they're going to have children. And we just want to help you with naming if you have a son. So if you want to name him Jacobus, there you go, okay? Jacobus or Calvin, either one. Go ahead. So Jacobus was a Dutch theologian. And he was a contemporary of Calvin in the 1500s. So they were around at the same time. And his theology came down to this. Free will or free choice theology. That's what it came. Now let me summarize this for you. It would be that when Jesus died on the cross, his atoning, the atonement, he achieved potential salvation for the whole world. But it only becomes real or applicable when human beings acknowledge their need for it and they humbly ask God, God, can I be a part of your family? Now, the Arminian uh, position doesn't have a nice kind of uh, acronym or, you know, to be able to give you like TULIP. Uh, but this is kind of the key points here. First of all, they believe human beings are totally responsible for coming to grips with their own sin. Second thing, human beings are totally responsible for making a personal decision to trust Christ for salvation. Your choice. An Armenian would say, human beings choose God, not the other way around. Next, human beings must make real decisions during the course of their life. And the last one there, human beings who make a non-choice about Jesus Christ during their life is the same as rejecting Jesus. So, you know, if you don't choose, then it's just like you're choosing. You ever have that experience before you go out to eat with somebody and you're like, hey, what do you want? Oh, you choose. And then you're like, uh, how about these two different ones? What do you think? Oh, I don't care. My wife does that all the time. This is the only time I ever get her to make a choice. I go, we're going to Burger King. She's like, I'll choose. You know what I mean? She doesn't like Burger King. So that's it. But if you don't make a choice, it's the same as making the choice that I don't want a relationship. Now, these thoughts are consistent with hundreds of passages in the scripture, folks. It resonates with our human experience, doesn't it? That we get real choices. God gives us choices to make. We get to choose in our life. For example, we know this from both scripture and experience. That God allows you to choose to get married if you want to. And who you're going to marry. And if you choose not to get married, it's your choice. God gives us the freedom to choose what career we want. What we'll pursue. He he allows us to choose where we're going to live. He allows us to choose what church to worship in. He gives us all kinds of freedoms and choices. So if he does that, then why would this one thing of faith of salvation be the only area that God chooses and we don't get a choice on. Also, this position resolves this unsavory idea that God predestines people to hell. Arminians would say, God would never do that. God is longing to allow people to come and to choose to be a part of his kingdom. But if they choose not to ever have anything to do with him here on earth, then they make that choice In the afterlife. But he doesn't put people there as the Calvinist would say. That God predestines and chooses some people to eternal separation. Arminians hold tightly 
to this next verse. Let's read it out loud together. It's in 2 Peter. Let's read it out loud. God is not willing that any should perish. Armenians love that verse. God's not willing that anyone should perish. God longs for people to choose him and to have a relationship with him. Now, to try to be objective about this view as well, which is hard to do, there are some difficulties with it. First of all, what do we do now with all the predestination passages that are in the Bible? All of those God chose you passages. What do we do with that? In fact, in our text today, there's two of them. One is in verse 4, and it says, For he chose us. And then if you go on down a little bit further to verse 11, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined. We were chosen. We were predestined. So what do you do with those types of verses if you're a strict Arminian? Well, I guess what you have to do is you take your Bible and you get some scissors and you just cut out those verses. Right? But the only problem is, if you go to the store to buy another Bible, guess what? They're still in there. You can't get rid of them. Here's the second difficulty. It is easy to subject God or make God accountable to the decisions and will of human beings. In other words, that we get to tell God what to do. We subject him to do what we want to do. And it conjures up claims and phrases about God in certain ways. And it can even digress in some pretty weird ways. Uh, Sometimes when explorers or people who are seeking God, they're seeking ways of God. They'll come up and I'll say, well, what do you think about God? And they're like, well, I might choose him. I might not choose him. I might give him a try. I might not give him a try. I might take a coin, flip it up in the air. Heads, I'm in. Tails, forget it. You know, and I'll hear people when they say this. I'm like, so you think choosing God is like choosing the difference between a cheeseburger and a hamburger? I mean, don't be so cavalier. Don't be so careless. We are talking about the greatest decision that any human being could ever make. And folks, the point that I'm making is this. Now granted, the Calvinist view may make you cringe. Total depravity. Limited, only a few. Atonement. Because it seems to take human beings totally out of it. But in the same light, folks, start pondering the fact that human beings get to decide the spiritual nature and eternity of God with God not even being a part of the process. From what I know about God and what I know about myself, I need God to be a part of the journey of spiritual truth. Especially when I'm trying to discern What is true and what isn't? So here are the two big views. You've got Calvinism on one side that says God chooses me. And you've got Arminianism on the other side that says, no, 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 no. It's you get to choose God. And there are a lot of churches that what they believe is that everybody has to think the same way. 
So what they'll do is they'll go around and they'll try to find people and they'll say, everybody in the church has to be Calvinist. And they'll go around the church and they'll be like, okay, how do you believe? You're like, tulip, tulip, you know, because you don't know what you believe. But you might think, ah, and what they'll do, they'll try to twist things around. And teachers and leaders, I've seen them do it in churches. And that's why a lot of churches, folks, split right down the middle because of this. And so early on, when the jar was first formed, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, decided that when it came to this, that we believed that there were enough smart people who were Calvinists and there were enough smart people who were in that camp that they could individually choose which one. That it wasn't a game breaker for us. But as we dealt with the tension that maybe we would grow more in understanding who God is so that at some point we would have a clearer picture. We just felt like it wasn't worth splitting a church over. Do you agree? Again, half of you probably agree. The other half are like, I'm ready to split. You know, I mean, I'm ready. All right. Now, in seminary, uh, I started thinking about these two things. It was talked about all the time. and They try to get you in a certain camp. And finally, it just hit me one day. Why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be both and like, why couldn't it be both? And because when you look at scripture, folks, you find it with groups of people and individuals that there's a both andness to it. For example, in the Old Testament, the chosen people are who? The Israelites. They are chosen. The non-chosen people are who? Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Now, when we get to the New Testament, in fact, the actual scripture that we're reading today, these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, Paul comes to them and he says, even you now can be a part of the family if you choose God because he wants to choose you. You see how those are both there. Two thoughts. It happens with individuals. One example is Paul. Paul's walking down a road. He is just seen this guy named Stephen stoned to death and he was jumping up and down. Kill the Christians. He's walking down a road. All of a sudden one day, a light from heaven comes down and blinds him and God says, no, you will not do that anymore. I choose you to be my sent one, my apostle. But in most situations in the New Testament, folks, it isn't that people are chosen like that, it seems like they get a choice. They get to choose. There's a story about a rich man, rich young ruler. This guy is very, very wealthy. And he comes to Jesus one day and he says, what must I do to uh, receive eternal life? He says, well, you should obey the commandments. And he goes through a whole laundry list of all the ones that he obeyed. And then Jesus said, well, now just go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And you see this like decision-making, this choice going back and forth. And finally it says that the man walked away and the scripture says Jesus was grieved. It sure seems like from that text that individuals get to choose whether they're going to follow Christ or whether they're not going to follow him. Folks, I really do believe that there can be a both and this to 
this kind of thinking. In fact, in my 15 years of being a pastor, I've never seen an honest, seeking, spiritual person who is trying their best to understand the sin in their life and they're, they're far from God and that they want a relationship with Him. I've never seen a genuinely exploring follower of the faith. I've never seen them kept out of the kingdom because they weren't elect or they weren't chosen in some way. It seems to me, to be honest, that seekers who want to be a part of the family of God, God reaches down and says, you are welcomed. In fact, sometimes I'll I'll talk to someone who I knew before their moment of accepting Christ. And then after they've accepted Christ, I'll say, well, you know, even before you accepted Christ, did you kind of get a sense that there were some things put in place that God was like, choosing you? Like maybe a neighbor who reached out to you or someone gave you a book or, you know, you just prayed because you were going through a real hard time and and you felt a closeness to God? And more often than not, a few years after they've come to Christ, they'll go, you know what, maybe God was really choosing me even before I came to Him so that I could be a part of the journey and be a part of His chosen family. Chuck Mock, the guy who uh, played guitar today. That's his story. I met him before he came to Christ, and then he finally came to Christ. And I was asking him, I said, well, Chuck, before you came to Christ, did you, did you see God working in your life? He said, oh, yeah. He goes, I remember one time doing a job for somebody. And the guy was a Christian man, and he spoke into my life, and I thought, he's got something in his life that I need. And he said, so I went and I got a Bible and I started reading it. I couldn't understand it all. And that guy invited me to come to church and, you know, multiple things that happened in his life. And people that spoke into his life and small groups that he was a part of until he came to that point. And, you know, the reason why this is so personal to me, folks, is because I was a functional Arminian for most of my life. I just kept thinking that that I had to earn God's love. I had to earn His grace. That I had to do certain things so that He would choose me. And it wasn't until I was 24 years old, and some of you have heard this before, but I was at a men's spiritual retreat weekend, and it was like God came down to me. And He said, I... Choose you. I choose you. And for the first time in my life, I understood what grace was, that it was a free gift. I couldn't earn it. That there was nothing that I could do to make God love me more, and there was nothing I could do to make God love me less. He simply loved me, and He chose me. And God, I want to choose you back. And on that day, it was like God reached down into my life and he opened my heart. He said, Chris, you're chosen now. Don't be, you know, consumed by the world. Go live for me in freedom. I got chosen. And this past week, 
God just kind of brought me back to that moment because I was thinking, man, these are two difficult theological views. I'm not sure if I'm going to come across well. I don't want to lose people. God, I feel so inadequate. It was like in a moment, he took me right to that place. And he said, Chris, I choose you. I was listening to a Christian song earlier this week. And uh, all of a sudden, in the midst of that, the words came and it, and it talked about God choosing me. And I, in that moment, I thought, it's true. He chose me. Like out of the seven billion people in the world, he chose me. One day we were, we had a volleyball party with some uh, friends from my wife's work. And I walked out and Jen took the girls home and I looked up and the clouds were just so beautiful and it was such a, such a great moment. I looked up and I just, I just felt like a whisper that God was saying, Chris, I choose you. Yesterday, when I was actually typing the conclusion of everything, and I'm typing it, I'm typing it, and, and like right now, it's like tears started coming because God chose me. And folks, if that doesn't move you to your knees, that you are so chosen by the one who is indescribable, nothing will ever move your heart. But you are chosen out of the seven billion people in the world. He looked down and he said, I choose you. Can't you see those of you who are followers of Christ, and if you're not, this is a great place to be a part of because we love to just have people who want to spiritually be on a path. And you and God decide that. But those of you who are Christ followers, don't you remember moments before you ever came to God that God was like working in your life, moving in some ways? You're not arbitrarily chosen. God chose you. And out of the seven billion people, folks, he reached down and he said, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. You're all chosen. Now the question is, will you reach up to him and say, I choose you? When the jar first uh, started, we had a song. We played it all the time. People were like, dude, do you play any other songs? We're like, no, get over it, you know. Maybe that's why the church didn't grow very much for the first three years. I don't know. Hear that or Chuck, probably, one of the two. But uh, we sang this song called Indescribable. And let me just read uh, one of the words. It talks about the sovereignty of God, that God is God and we are not, and it's, it's him who chooses It says he is indescribable, uncontainable, all-powerful, untamable, amazing God. And so you get this sense of it's like this kind of of Calvinist God is reaching down. He's choosing you. He's so big. He's so large. It doesn't matter. But then when it gets closer to the end of the song, it says incomparable, unchangeable. He saw the depths of my heart. Like he saw the depths of my heart and he loves me the same and I get to choose him. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and Chuck and the band are going to lead us in this song. And I hope you see that this 
indescribable God, He chooses you. Indescribable, unattainable. You place the stars. 
today for the first time or you've been coming for a little while and you're like, oh my goodness, like we talked about all this history and all this deep stuff, seriously. I mean, I was just coming to try to check out if there was someone from the opposite sex that was, you know, single. And, uh, you know, this is what I got. Well, I don't think it's by accident that God chose you to be here today. And I don't think it's by accident that God chose each person to be here today. And today, if you want to begin that kind of relationship, maybe today's the day that just come up one of these people, they'd love to pray with you, kind of help you take those next steps to understand the amazing love of our God. Let's pray. God, to be quite honest, I still can't believe that you chose me. And today I pray that people would leave, Lord, with a a sense of awe that the indescribable God chooses them. God chose you. And then God, give us a sense of mission and purpose to tell people there's a God who loves them and his gift of grace is available to all. Make us be bold with sharing your love this week with others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.